0: Good evening everyone. Let's go ahead and uh, get started. I hope you've had a good week so far. A little chilly this evening. I guess at least for us, huh? So uh, glad that we can be together in the middle of the week to study. Go ahead and take out your Bible, please, and go to uh, Matthew 23. Go back to Matthew 23 in your Bible. Lesson five in your book, um, if you're a guest here tonight, I don't know if we have any visitors or not, but if you are, I think we have, may have copies of this lesson for tonight. Our plan is to conclude our lesson about the events of Tuesday, of the last week of Christ. We want to conclude the thoughts about Tuesday. Tuesday is a very busy day for Jesus And then we want to start talking about what happened on Wednesday, Wednesday of the last week of Christ. Before we do that, let's bow our heads and have a prayer together. Almighty God, thank you for uh, this opportunity you've given us to come together to study and learn and encourage each other. Father, I'm so thankful for the brothers and sisters uh, who make up this wonderful congregation I pray that your hand of blessing be upon us in our study. I pray that you'll bless our young people, bless the Bible class teachers. Continue, Father, to just help us in this place, grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue to study carefully the events about the last week of his life, and to just be edified and encouraged and thankful for the life of Christ, by the life of Christ, and leave here just zealous to do good works. Bless us, Father, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, just to make sure we're on the same page in regards to where we are in this study, uh, we are making our way right through the last week of Jesus Christ. We're on Tuesday. Tuesday's the day where Jesus does a lot of teaching in the temple. He has a lot of um, Conflicts with the Jewish leaders, a lot of debates and failed efforts by these Jewish leaders to trap Jesus and diminish his influence. So all that is going on. Jesus is also teaching parables on this day, a lot of parables talking about uh, the pending uh, destruction of the Jewish nation. The key events of this particular lesson we're looking at, As far as Tuesday goes, the warnings to the crowds in regards to avoiding being like the Pharisees in particular, but really the religious leaders as a whole. We have the woes to the Pharisees. We looked at those. We concluded our last class by talking about the eight woes of Matthew 23. They were found in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, 29, you just go through your Bible there. That's what I did in my Bible, just mark them. There's eight woes there. And in each one of those woes, Jesus reveals something about the corruptness of these men. And then one of the main things we're going to look at today, if not the main thing, is the warnings concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. Some of the things Jesus said about these men, if you remember, He says that they wanted to be viewed as religious authorities. It really meant a lot to them to be elevated and put on a a pedestal in front of the people. They wanted to view themselves, they wanted people to view them, I'm sorry, as the ultimate authority in religion. They taught the truth. They didn't practice the truth. Another word for that was what? The word what? They were hypocrites. They bound their traditions as being equal to God's law. They made an effort to look the part, but they were not the part inwardly. They were not authentic followers of God. They love places of position. Jesus said they love to sit in the seat of Moses, the elevated spots in the synagogue. And they love to wear these religious titles. So those are some of the things we talked about last time. Let's just finish this lesson up. Go to question six. Question six on lesson five. That's where we stopped off. Jesus talks about the arrogant. The arrogant. And the arrogant in this context is the, is the Pharisees. They are the arrogant. And what did Jesus say happens to those who exalt themselves too high? What, what did he say there? They will be humbled. That's what Jesus said. This is not the only time we find Jesus saying this. He also says the same thing in Luke, the 18th chapter. Jesus taught this constantly throughout his ministry. When people exalt themselves, eventually God brings them down. God humbles them. He humbles the prideful. We see that in the Old Testament. One of the great cases of it is Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? Remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, one night was walking on the roof of his palace and he looked around the glory of the kingdom of Babylon and Babylon was a glorious kingdom. And he said, look at what I've accomplished by my strength, by my might, by, the, by just by myself. He gave himself the glory. And God, after he did that, spoke to him and said, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be humbled. And God really did a job on him. He got him to the point to where he was looking like an animal, behaving like an animal, even started eating grass like an animal. God took his kingdom from him for a time. And eventually, after this period of judgment was over on Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God is the one who rules in the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson the hard way. So that is a great example, I believe, of an occasion when God did exactly what Jesus says, and that is he humbles those full of pride. God is also going to humble these prideful Pharisees. He's going to humble these men who love places of position, who viewed themselves as great authorities. God ultimately was going to do that through the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem was God's way of bringing judgment on the Jewish nation for their rejection of Jesus and particularly bringing judgment on these Jewish leaders because of their prideful hearts. And it was their pride, ultimately, that led them to rejecting Jesus. It was their pride. Jesus did all these miracles over and over again, but they never accepted him as the Messiah, even though he gave the supernatural evidence because of pride. They intentionally did not want to accept him. They were blind to the truth because they wanted to be blind to the truth. And we got to be careful of that also. We got to be careful of intentionally putting blinders on when the truth is right in front of us. That's a trap we can fall into, right? We got to be careful of that. So go to question seven. Jesus called the Pharisees something in Matthew 23, 33. What did he call them? Serpents and what else? brood of vipers. Wow. How would you like to be called that by the son of God? A serpent, a snake and a brood of vipers. The word brood, the word brood that is used there is a word that means offspring. So what the Lord is essentially saying is your parents were a bunch of snakes. And guess what? You're a bunch of snakes just like your parents. Your ancestors were a bunch of serpents. They were a bunch of vipers and you're just like them. You're continuing the pattern. Now, why were they broods of vipers and serpents? Well, because their ancestors rejected the prophets, didn't they? They rejected God's messengers, and they're even doing worse than their ancestors because they're rejecting God's chief prophet, who is Jesus Christ. So this was a wicked people. This is a wicked people. They're following in the footsteps and even doing even worse than their ancestors. That's what Jesus says. He says to them that they were going to have a hard time escaping what? Going to hell. You're going to have a hard time. How are you going to escape the sentence of hell? Let's notice a few important things about what Jesus says there. Two things. First, contrary to what a lot of people suggest today and, and even want to believe, Jesus says that hell is a real place. You see that? Hell is real. Jesus is talking about the hell, that the, the place where the wicked go, where the devil will be with his angels. Hell is not some imaginary place. It is not some some place made up by preachers just to scare people. No, Jesus said hell is real. It is a real place. It is an actual place of horror. In fact, Jesus preached more about hell than any other preacher in the Bible by far. It's not even close. He preached about hell over and over again. And Jesus said that these men were on their way there. They were going to have a hard time avoiding that sentence because of their hearts. Now, Jesus says, you're on the path to hell. You're on your way to hell. What does that mean? That means you're on your way to hell. That means you're on that path. Now, could these men repent and change? Sure, they could. But more than likely, most of them did not. Why? Because of pride. Pride. So these men were on the path to hell. Now, I want you to go to Matthew 23, back to verse 37. Let's look at this last part here. I want you to just hang with me on this last part, okay? And I promise to give you the, the last five minutes of the class to, to make your observations. So just, uh, just hang with me, please. And you do a great job listening. I appreciate it. Matthew 23, 37. Okay, so after Jesus just finishes this strong sermon or period of rebuking and exposing the corruptness of the Pharisees, in verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the holy city. Remember, this was David's capital city. We studied that on Sunday. That's where the temple was. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. Now do you see why they're a brood of vipers? Their ancestors killed the prophets stones those who were sent to her. Again, the reference to the prophets. How often I want to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. couple of things I want you to notice there. First, notice how Jesus here, Jesus talks about how he wanted to bless the people of Israel. He wanted to bless the people of Jerusalem. He wanted to bless even these religious leaders who were rejecting him, the Pharisees, the scribes, the the Sadducees. Jesus wanted to bless and be in a relationship with these people, but they rejected him. God doesn't force us to serve him. He wants us to. He, He wants to have a relationship with everybody, but he doesn't force that on people. He didn't force that on these people. They rejected him. And because they rejected him, because they were not allowed him to embrace them like a, a hen gathers her chicks and, and comforts and protects her chicks, Jesus says, Your house is being left desolate. What does that mean? Somebody tell me. What does it mean when Jesus says, Jerusalem, your house, is being left desolate? I'm sorry? Say, I'm I'm sorry. Oh, childless. I'm sorry. Okay, forgive me. Childless. Okay. Anybody else? Childless. Anyone else? What does it mean? Your house is being left desolate. What's coming? Destruction. 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 God's presence is leaving this place. Desolate. God's presence will not be here anymore. Judgment is coming instead. Instead of blessing, judgment. And then Jesus alludes to that in verse 39. When he talks about coming here, he's talking about coming in judgment. Not the the second physical coming, but the coming of judgment. There are different kinds of comings of Jesus in the New Testament. Sometimes Jesus comes in judgment. Sometimes he comes through his Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit, like it's mentioned in John 16. We're reading that. And then we're anticipating or waiting for the final coming, right? The second personal coming of Jesus. But here in Matthew 24, we're about to dive into this. Jesus begins this unit by talking about a coming, not the coming, but a coming. A coming on Jerusalem in judgment. So let's look at that. Look at Matthew 24, verse 1. And many of you know I did some videos on this, so if I don't get to go into a whole lot of detail, just go on the website. I did three videos on Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, now one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The end of the age is actually the more proper translation there, not the end of the world. But it's actually the proper translation. When you go back to the Greek, it's age. Some of your translations may have age. If it does, that is the more accurate translation. So just... Three things I want to say about this, because I could talk about Matthew 24 for, for, you know, a whole week nonstop if if you let me. But I just want to say three things about it. First, notice where they are when this conversation is taking place. Verse one says they are coming out from the temple. So all the teaching has been going on in the temple. This whole eight woes section took place in the temple. They're coming out of the temple, and the temple was just massive. It is massive. Beautiful buildings. Herod's temple was a beautiful site. And Jesus is, is saying, Look at all of this. Look at this. This is one day going to be torn down. It would have been like, you know, several years before the Twin Towers went down in 2001. Somebody predicting years in advance, that those massive towers will one day be torn down. Hard to believe that. Hard to realistically believe that something that glorious and and just massive could ever be torn down. The apostles are just blown away that Jesus would say this about Herod's temple. One of the great wonders of the world at this time. So Jesus says something really radical that the temple is going to be destroyed. So they're coming out of the temple then the promise is not one stone here will be left upon another. It is going to be torn down completely. Every stone, every part is going to collapse. Verse 3, they ask what, and this is difficult to really pin this down, okay, so I'm just going to throw some options out. Some suggest they're asking two questions. Others suggest they're asking one big question. I submit that however you take that, it doesn't change the the proper interpretation, I believe, of the unit. So, some say, I don't think there are three questions being asked. I think you maybe have two, maybe one. So, when will these things happen? When will what happen? When will what happen? The desolation, the temple being torn down. When is that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, those who advocate one question say that all three of those things tie together. The destruction of the Jewish age, the destruction of the temple, the coming of Jesus in judgment and the end of the Jewish age. Okay, that's a possibility. Another possibility is they're asking about the destruction of the temple which would be tied to the coming of Jesus and judgment on Jerusalem. And maybe they thought that something like that could only be tied to the end of the world. That only the end of the only the temple go down when the world is ending. There are passages in the Old Testament that allude to the fact that the world is not going to last forever. So it could be that regardless of what view you hold, whether asking one question or two, When you study this chapter, I believe it is pretty clear that Jesus deals with two different things. He deals with when the temple was going to be destroyed, the signs that would precede that, and when the world is going to end and he comes back personally. So let's say you take the first view. Let's say you think there's one question being asked. Okay, fine. Jesus clearly deals with that. But that doesn't mean He can't transition and deal with something else, too. And I think he clearly does. I think he clearly does. So let me just say a few things about this, okay? The destruction of Jerusalem. Look at the uh, question 8. The warning signs. The warning signs of Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35, and Luke 21, 5 through 33. What are they pointing to? They are pointing to warning signs that would precede what? The destruction of Jerusalem. That's what they're talking about. Those verses, Matthew 24, 1 through 35, have nothing to do with the end of the world. They have nothing to do with the end of the world. Remember the cursing of the fig tree. The fig tree represented the fruitlessness of Israel and how God was going to curse Israel, bring judgment on Israel. Jesus here in Matthew 24 is going into more detail about that. He is talking about signs that would precede the destruction or the demise of the Jewish nation and the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Some of the things he lists there, and I won't go through them all, but false Christ. There will be many false Christ that will pop up onto the scene before Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem, history tells us, was destroyed in 70 A.D. 40 years after Jesus, about 40 years after Jesus made these predictions. And Jesus says in that 40-year gap, you're going to have false Christ pop up onto the scene. History tells us that from the time of 33 AD and 70 AD, there were false Christs all through, all through Israel. They were all over the place. There were going to be wars and rumors of wars. History tells us there were all kinds of wars and rumors of wars from 33 A.D. to 70 A.D. There are going to be earthquakes in various places. Something else, history confirms, there were earthquakes all over the place between 33 A.D. and 70 A.D. False prophets, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Jesus even says in verse number 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to to all the nations and then the end not the end of the world the end of the Jewish nation the end of Jerusalem then it would come this is all tied to destruction of Jerusalem I'll prove that here in just a second but the question is back on the on the question here why were these signs given so we find the signs why are they being why is Jesus even given these signs why is he even telling these signs about Jerusalem why Yes. So they can be ready. So Christians can be ready. That's exactly right. The Christians, if they listen to Jesus, would have a heads up. They would have enough time to get out of Jerusalem. Jesus has given them these signs so they can know to get out of the city. So if they saw these things happening, particularly verse 15. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. What is fleeing to the mountains going to do for you if this is the second coming, the end of the world? Is fleeing to the mountains going to help you any when Jesus comes back personally? Not going to help you at all. It's got to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. When they saw the Roman army do what Daniel prophesied, commit the abomination of desolation, that is, go into the temple to defile it. That will let them know, we got to get out of here. We got to go to the mountains. We got to get out of Jerusalem. Josephus, one of the great Jewish historians, in fact, probably the greatest of the Jewish historians, and his writings says that every one of these things Jesus talks about that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem, happened. They're all in his writings. The only thing that he doesn't mention in his writings is verse 14, where Jesus says the gospel will be preached in the whole world. That's the only thing Josephus doesn't mention. He mentions the earthquakes, the, the wars, rumors of wars. All of that is in history is happening between 33 A.D. 70 A.D. If you want to see the fulfillment of verse 14, you got to read the book of Colossians. Paul wrote Colossians in 63 A.D seven years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1.23, and then there's I think there's another verse there in chapter 1 also, twice in Colossians, Paul says that by 68, 63 A.D., the gospel had been preached in all the world. It had been preached, he even says, to every nation under heaven. That was 63 A.D. So everything Jesus said, that would take place from 33 A.D. to 70 A.D. happened. History confirms it. And another interesting thing is this. History also tells us that when the Romans came into Jerusalem and wiped out the city and tore the temple down, over one million Jews died. One million Jews. You know how many Christians are on record in history That's dying in the destruction of Jerusalem. Big zero. Over one million Jews, no Christians. What does that mean? They listened. They listened to Jesus, and they got out. They got out in time. Now, three key verses I want you to look at here very quickly. Verse 34 Verse 34. Drop this down if you like to write in your Bible. I love to write in my Bible or at least make note of it somewhere if you if you uh, want to. Verse 34 is called the time verse. The time verse. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation. Will not pass away until all these things take place, but this generation is a reference to the people he's talking to during that time. A Bible generation is typically about 40 years. OK. And Jesus is saying that these things, everything I have said prior to here, which would be verses one through thirty three, is for this generation, not 2020, that generation. So however you want to interpret the first three, three verses, at least apply them to the right people, which is that generation. That's what Jesus said. That's the time verse. Verse 35 is a promise. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus promised that the heavens, the heavens and the earth is going to pass away. It's going to happen. But his words, the promises he's made, not just these promises, but every promise, they will last forever. So Jesus in verse 35 is letting us know that there's going to come a time when the earth will pass away. It's just not going to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in verse 36, I believe you can call that verse the transition verse. The transition verse. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Well, before the day and hour could be known through signs, right? The signs. But now Jesus is going to talk about something else where you can't know. The angels don't know. Not even he knows. Well, he knew about the destruction of Jerusalem. He gave all the signs. He says only the father knows about the next day. And then he talks about how it's going to be like the days of Noah. And, and then he goes and he goes into details on that. So I believe that the chapter break does us a disservice here. I believe verse 36 is the beginning of a transition from talking about the signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem to talking about the second coming and how there will be no signs. It would be like the days of Noah. It would be like. 10 virgins, and you got five unprepared to go to a wedding feast, and the door is locked. It would be like chapter 25, verse 14 the servant who didn't know when his master was going to come back and he hadn't done well with his talents. And even in look at verse 31 of chapter 25 31, but the son of, but when the son of man comes, I think that's the personal second coming of Jesus in his glory. And notice the angels are going to be with him. Are you mean to tell me that? The son of man there represents the Romans and the angels represent the Roman soldiers. The son of man is Titus and the the angels are the Roman soldiers. Well, this is this is Jesus second coming. He's going to sit on his glorious throne and what nations are going to be gathered before him? Just the Jews, according to verse 32. All nations, all nations. So I think from verse 36 of chapter 24 all the way to the end of 25 that's the second coming the second personal coming of Jesus and everything before verse 36 of Matthew 24 ties to signs that will precede the destruction of Jerusalem and so Jesus is very busy on Tuesday he's very busy on Tuesday all these debates these arguments these confrontations teaching in parables and then teaching the apostles after all this about the destruction of Jerusalem and even his second personal coming. Um, a phylactery. You see these guys here, when I was able to go to Jerusalem, we were able to visit the Western Wall. The Western Wall is the second holiest site for the Jewish people today, or those who identify themselves as Jews. The Western Wall is the last thing still standing from what happened with the Romans in 70 A.D. It's the last thing that, that wasn't, that, the only thing that wasn't torn down completely. So the Jews go to this wall and they put their hands on it and they pray and they sing. These little things you see here in the cracks, they write prayers and put them in the cracks. They're hoping soon their Messiah will come. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. They believe the Messiah has yet to come. And they believe that when the Messiah comes, he will kick the Muslims off of, where they are, he will kick them out of the, the, the Holy Land and give it back to them again. And they pray for that. And the, so the holiest site for the Jews is the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is, and they don't have access to where the Temple Mount is today. The Muslims have that. So the closest they can get is the Western Wall, which is the second holiest site. And this goes back 2,000 years to the time of Herod. So, the only thing the Romans didn't tear down. This is see what they're doing here. They come there, put their hands on it. They pray. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. The Muslims and the Jews get so wrapped up in this land. But as Christians, we're not wrapped up in any physical land, are we? As Christians, we're thinking about spiritual land. We know this is going to be destroyed when Jesus comes back. We could care less. We're thinking about spiritual stuff. They're still tied in the physical. This right here is 2,000 years old stones. This This goes all the way back to the Romans. These are, this is leftovers for when the Romans came there. This is at the southwest corner of the temple mount. These stones are the very stones that the Romans, some of the stones they knocked down from the temple when they destroyed it. Notice that when these stones hit the, hit the ground, notice the big holes they put, the big craters they put. This stuff hasn't been touched in 2,000 years. This goes all the way back to when the Romans came into the Jerusalem and destroyed it and murdered over a, over a million a million Jews, so I didn't anticipate, man. I did not anticipate going into de- that much detail on that. But I, I hope it was useful to you. Let's pause now and see what comments anybody has. Any uh, we got a few minutes? Any comments, questions about what we've talked about as we concluded uh, lesson number five? Anything at all? Feel free to. Yes, sir, Lance. Oh.
1: what was that, and in Luke, this time studying, Luke mentions the fact that Judas specifically was looking for when Jesus was away from the crowds. Later on in that chapter, Jesus points out to them, and it's almost like a parallel to Peter and the rooster crowing, Mm -hmm. Jesus points out to them, why did you come to me now whenever I was all around you in the temple? And then he says, this is your hour. And to me, that almost looked like a a, a nod to Judas of, you know, his betrayal. And we don't get Judas's reaction to that, but it it was something that I noticed. Studying in the verses of this week about that one point in Luke about the the, the betrayal was Jesus being away from the
0: crowds. That's exactly right. That was the whole point, point. and we're actually going to study that in the next lesson. I wanted to get into some of that tonight. I, I ran out of time, a time, but in the next lesson, I will I will emphasize that more about how the whole betrayal was giving them access to Jesus alone. That's, they couldn't find. That's, because if you, there's several times in the gospel where it says they wanted to seize him, but they couldn't because of the crowd. Judas gave them what they were looking for, which was, where is he at alone at night where we can get him? That was the sellout right there. That's exactly what it was. They, they, didn't, know where, they didn't know about him going to the Garden of Gethsemane at, at nights. Judas did, though, and they paid Judas, Judas for that information. What that observation is right on the money. And, 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 and I'm going to, we'll talk about that more next class, so that's good. Anyone else? Bro? Uh, Mitch, and then, and then Don. It's interesting that you mentioned Josephus. He was not a Christian. No. He was not a
1: believer at all. And he, so he didn't have a dog in the fight. He had no reason to twist or reverse history. You know, the earthquakes, all the things he said. Um, so he's very trustworthy. No. He, he was far from being biased toward
0: Christianity. No, that's an excellent point. That is, Josephus is one of the great sources outside of the Bible we have that confirms a lot of the things uh, that Jesus said. And there are others. There's Tacitus, a a Roman historian. There are a lot of historians from the ancient times that did not have a dog in the fight. They were not Christians. And yet they give us a lot of information that confirms a lot of things pertaining to our faith. Uh, And Josephus is one and there are many others. So that's an excellent point. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, done. I like to
1: put this with a sequence of events. You take Matthew 23, 24, 25, Luke chapter 21, etc., along with a timeline of the happenings from the time that Jesus turned around and says, this is all going to fall down and walks away. It's almost like he is walking away from the temple. Your God has departed you and then the death on the cross with the splitting of the veil God's no longer in there yeah. and you come all the way down through there and look at, at the events as they tie to Vespasian leaving, Titus taking over right. there's that slot where the Christians escape Right. and then it closes down and
0: so nobody can not get out, out now and, out. and that, that kind of closes that area that is referred to there in the chronological time. Period. Right. No, and, and that's the key, you know. And they had about a month. That window was about 30 days. That's right. And they all got out. That's exactly right. You know, uh, that so that language end, whenever you see end, don't always think end of the world. Study context carefully. It's a period of time. The end of something. Just what is it? End of what? Uh, uh, so that's good anybody else uh, before? Yes method. The Jews and the Romans, you mean? Yes. That's a great question. In fact, when Jesus talks about and prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem, he talks about nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That, a lot of that was fulfilled with this relationship between the Jews and the Romans. The Jews couldn't stand the Romans. They actually hated the Romans more than the Romans hated them. The Jews didn't like the Romans because they didn't, want, they didn't have their freedom. They, you see, in, the, in that time between the Testaments, the, Jew, the Jewish people gained independence from the Syrians through the work of a man named a uh, Jewish Maccabee. The Maccabees led a revolt and got their independence for a time. That's why the Jews to this day celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not like their Christmas, it's more like their uh, Independence Day. And, and so they, they remember that freedom they had from the Syrians, but then the Romans come along and they conquer them and take their freedom away and the, the Jews never liked that. They hated the Romans. That's why they hated Herod so much too. And so the Jews will always start these little rebellions, these little fires the Romans would have to put out. And it got to the point prior to 70 A.D. where they were rebelling so much, the Romans just got fed up with it. And they said, we're just going to put them out. We're going to put this fire out for good. So it really boiled down to what you see in the world today. People want freedom. People not like you know when other countries dominate them. That's how the Jews felt about the Romans. And the Romans just said we, we just got, they got tired of dealing with it. And they just did away with them. The Romans didn't want to deal with this thing with Jesus. This is the insistence of the Jews. And, and, and Pilate, you know, he didn't want to make it look like to the emperor, I can't handle my jurisdiction. So he just gives them what they want uh, so, the, so the emperor won't come down on him. So that's a great question. And I'll try to talk about that more. We'll stop there. Uh, next time, let's do Lesson 6. Don't get worried. We're not behind. I put that little review class in there to, to, in case something like this happened. So if we don't have to do that review, that's fine. We're going to get through the material, okay? Thank you.